Welcome to another episode of the Storytellers Podcast. In this episode, I had the pleasure of talking to an old lecturer of mine from the Monash School of Business, Jason Chu. Jason is currently implementing a change in his course over at Monash, whereby exams are being removed and lectures are being moved to a purely online forum as part of a new pedagogy being instituted by the Vice-Chancellor. This conversation centred around the assumptions implicit within the changes to this pedagogy, as well as addressing the assumptions already made and present within the current system. We also discussed the conflicting motivations of profits versus pedagogy and what's really at play here and the implications and consequences that this might have for students going forward. Overall, it was a very interesting and stimulating conversation. As you will hear, Jason is a very thoughtful and insightful and caring person, and it was a real pleasure to talk to him on this topic and hear his thoughts and to share some of my own, as it's a, as it's a, a topic that uh, interests me quite a lot. So, without further ado, I give you Jason Chu. So, Jason, thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. So, to kick things off, um, perhaps you could give us a little bit of an introduction as to who you are and your background and how you come to be speaking about the topics that we're going to go over today. Well, thanks, Lucien. Um, well, um, just a little bit about me. I'm a lecturer at Monash University. Uh, I've been at Monash University for 20 years now. And uh, yeah, uh, before that, I was a student at Monash University. I did banking finance there. Uh, then after my studies, I went to Singapore to work for a little bit. Uh, and I was in industry and private banking for a number of years. Uh, private banking is where you're selling stuff to rich people. Uh, and after several years of that, I decided to come back to Australia for an easier life in academia. That's what I do full time. I also uh, run a property business with my wife as well, too. And yeah, I've been uh, uh, in, involved with that for the past 15, 20 years. Cool. So an extensive background, not just in finance, but also in pedagogy, which is essentially the topic of this topic of this podcast and maybe it's also worth distinguishing that you're not just a lecturer but also a unit coordinator so um that's that's still a correct title yeah yeah that's right um so apart from most lecturers are also unit coordinators um or you you you, the the title is uh, chief examiner so um we're in charge of uh, the curriculum of deciding um, the assessment, uh, deciding the structure, as you mentioned, the pedagogy, how things are taught, 
and also um, we're required to be the content experts as well too in terms of deciding what's taught and uh, making sure that everything aligns up with uh, uh, what the department requires in, of the unit. Mm. Yeah, great. So what is, um, what's happening over at Monash at the moment? The last time we talked, there was some interesting developments that are about to take place and which you're currently working on. So maybe we could just jump right into, jump right into that. What's going on over there that's so worth talking about? Yeah, so uh, Monash University has gotten a new Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Education. Um, uh, that's Sharon Pickering. And uh, like lots of uh, new Deputy Vice-Chancellors, um, she had a bold vision as to where she wanted to move uh, the education of the university. Um, so we have a Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Education. We have a Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research uh, as well, too. Uh, so in the education space, in the education front, she really wanted to move things forward uh, to better align the university um, with the outcomes that the industry expects uh, of its graduates. And to do that, uh, one of the things that she wanted to do was to uh, completely realign uh, the thinking, uh, the expectations, uh, and the assessment so in a nutshell, the result of that realignment was that um, exams are being removed from the majority of units within the university wherever possible, um, because the prevailing thinking is that um, students don't actually need to sit an exam when they go for a job interview. Students need to be able to present themselves, to communicate, to articulate, to apply what they've learned, uh, to, to have self-awareness uh, to develop intellectual emotional maturity uh, when they're in a job interview um, exams don't really contribute to that <laughs> uh, very few people actually have to sit an actual exam when they go for a job interview uh, i don't think psychometric tests really count we still have tests what we have what we don't have is an exam um, and also when people are working in the workplace um, an exam isn't really also part of the milestones or the criteria that um, working professionals have to undergo on a regular basis. So um, that that's a big step in, in, in a new direction, the removal of exams uh, and also the removal of lectures. And the removal of lectures comes from uh, um, the evolution of, of how students consume education, um, and that is students are choosing not to go to lectures anymore. Uh, and we can talk about reasons about why uh, a bit later. Um, and instead, um, we're moving completely towards the so-called flipped classroom model, where uh, um, the lecture is actually delivered as what they call asynchronous content. In other words, it's, it's taught through various activities, self-paced um, online, uh, by themselves and uh, students only go to class for their tutorials where they actually apply the material um, and the tutorials are be expanded uh, uh, to usually two hours so it's more of a workshop that's followed mm. up by post class material yeah so those are two of the really big results to, to come out of this uh, entire process mm. well maybe let's start with there's exams and lectures there and they both they're both their own thing but they both tie sort of back to the same thing so 
maybe let's start with lectures with the um the theory behind so the the theory behind getting rid of lectures is that no one is attending lectures well you you have a severely reduced proportion of students attending lectures and so it's economically more efficient to simply then not have those lectures and supposedly you're not losing anything by no longer having those lectures in person so maybe firstly what what are your thoughts on those sort of those two um those two points yeah absolutely and completely agreed um it it's the conflation of two important phenomena the first one was started to occur approximately 20 years back when lectures were being recorded so the the issue with lectures and and how they've traditionally been conducted um is lectures have been passive one way communication so you'd imagine a lecture is is in a big hall you've got hundreds of students in there you've got a single lecturer who's uh, at the front um being the so-called sage on the stage delivering content and and speaking the issue is that the way that which information is communicated is one way passive now uh when you do what watch a lot of really good engaging lectures online uh you'll see that the lectures are actually moving around the lecture theater they they're trying to engage people by having one-on-one conversations with people um that's good that makes for a more interesting uh more uh um uh involved experience but not for all students um and it it takes um a, a particularly talented lecturer um to be able to um deliver the quality uh and to connect with students in such a way uh as you would see you know for example famous lecturers um uh, on on social media youtube for example um and the simple fact is that the vast majority of lectures don't really have the language the articulation uh the ability the interest uh to engage students well mm. in that sort of format uh i think the stories of of lectures uh being boring students falling asleep in lectures um are far more common and abound um than students saying oh no it's a fantastic lecture i was absolutely riveted for that 2 hours that i was there so what happened was that um because of the one primary one way communication because um the lecture experience was average for the most people um when lecture recordings came out lots of students said well why am i going to lectures because when i watch a lecture recording i can pause it when i need to take notes i can rewind it i can fast forward it i'm going to be watching the lecture recording anyway when i do revision uh when i uh, study for the test uh, when i study for the exam when i need to go over material uh that i need to apply for my assignments so why should i go to the lecture if i'm not getting any value add out of that experience then simply watching the lecture recording because mm-hmm. again for 99% of students in the lecture theater they just sitting there listening it is one way communication mm. so this was a problem which has been around for a long time lots of students 
choosing and electing not to attend lectures um, because they can just consume the lecture recording uh, at a pace and at a time uh, um, of their own choosing and the style of their own choosing. And um, ultimately, it, it got to the stage where lecture attendance had fallen so much that it just wasn't economical to run a lecture theatre, um, which could sit maybe 300 students where maybe only 50 students were turning up. Um, it also was a relatively big blow to morale to the lecturers to say, well, I'm delivering the lecture, but only 20 or 30 students out of a 300 student cohort are turning up. So, it was, so is that a statement about actually my lecturing or, or you know, is, mm. is, is that just a, a, an artifact of, of the phenomenon um, that I just described? So it's, it's actually a combination of multiple things. Mm -hmm. So that, that was uh, um, that particular phenomenon in, and, and how it evolved and developed. And, and COVID really um, crystallized and catalyzed the change in the movement where everything went online. And it turned out that when we did everything online, we could do um, uh, um, as good a job in terms of the lectures as we did when we were face-to-face -face, uh, in terms of all the primary metrics um, that are used to measure student engagement, um, it, it didn't really affect anything. <laughs> um, so basically the higher-ups came together and said, well, this is the trend anyway. We all know it. Students aren't coming to lectures. So we have what's called the flipped model, where instead of having a two-hour lecture followed by a one-hour tutorial, uh, students consume uh, um, the lecture uh, in their own time in sort of pre-class work activities. Mm. Uh, could be a collection of lectures, uh, videos that they consume. It could be uh, mixed in with quizzes, mixed in with readings. And then they actually go to class to apply their material. So the classroom experience will always be there. Uh, this is what we call the hybrid model. And then after that, mm. then, uh, uh, hybrid teaching versus purely face-to-face -face or purely online. Then after that, they go away and, and, and do uh, more post-class, um, mm. usually at their own time online. So, yeah, we have this model already. We have the catalyst of COVID-19 um, when everything was online. And also we have the phenomenon that less and less students are choosing to attend live lectures. Um, so that's, that's sort of the background behind it. Yes. So speak to the idea of lectures. So I'm, because lectures are definitely, I definitely agree that it is very much the case that you have good lecturers and you have bad lecturers. That's that's um, that's immediately obvious as soon as you've spent. Just like there's good teachers and there's bad teachers, um, there's good lecturers and bad lecturers, and that becomes quite clear very early on in your university degree. And that's always that's always going to be the case. Like lecturing. Lecturing is, in some sense, like a, it's a kind of performance and a, to kind of think of it as, as a performance and in that sense, some people are going to be good, some people are good performers and some people are uh, bad performers. Some people know how to engage a, an audience um, with their words and with their tone of voice and with the ideas that they're presenting also with their body language. So some people are naturally great at that and some people some people 
struggle. Like you yourself are a, a good example of this. You're quite a good lecturer. Um, you're not monotonous and you know how to give inflection. And you move around and how to speak to students. And so, and, but to go to, um, to go back to this trend of students' um, decrease in attendance in lectures over the past 20 years, I imagine, or like a relative decrease in attendance, a decrease in attendance relative to the number of students that are attending a course or attending university is that firstly, you've just got far more people attending university than you did um, 20 years ago, particularly, I think, in Australia. And so you've got a much greater, a much larger cohort, and you've got a much larger need for lecturers and more lecturers. And so you're just naturally going to get dilution of quality likely through that because, and a lot of, I think a lot of students now aren't attending university for quite the same reasons that they may have been attending university um, a couple of decades ago. I think you've got more students attending university as a much more casual and um, less sort of motivated pathway. It's more just a something that you fall into into doing and so participation and engagement in that sense uh decreases and so and probably in the same and and this also might be reflected in the lecturers themselves and the number of lecturers and the manner in which people lecture and i think you've also got a a, a reduction in attention span particularly in the past decade and a bit through things like social media and technology attention span for people my age a little older and younger it's pretty terrible <laughs> it's um you know having phones in a classroom now i think that's just like in a lecture hall that's just completely changed the nature of lecturing uh the nature of engaging with a lecture or uh the teaching of knowledge you know if you're just breaking it up every five or ten minutes with this or that you're not really engaged you're not really there um so that's I think two things that perhaps are, are that that have contributed to this trend of a reduction in attendance, but the idea that you have some lecturers that are good and some that are bad, and therefore a lot of kids aren't getting the benefit out of lectures any way that they theoretically should be, and so moving to just an online forum. Um, to me, that just means you're getting a bad, not, you're, you're almost just getting a bad lecture every time. You might have a good lecturer, lecturer delivering the lecture, but a good lecture in person is never going to be, is always going to be better than a good lecture on a video. You don't have body language, you don't have engagement, you don't have the persona and the in character to draw you into a topic in the present so I sort of wonder if there's potentially a trade-off there in that just simply moving to this blanket online um, mo- uh, modality is simply maybe you bring up your low bar a little bit, but you just, you're, you're capping your high bar in terms of what can be achieved. And in terms of the metrics that you mentioned that show student success or speak to student success, like... Uh, I guess I'd question how perhaps accurate 
they are or just how um um how useful they are from ex- my experience anecdotally personally and then as as someone in a community with other students online lectures are great in that they mean you don't have to go to a lecture and so you can just already commit less to that lecture to begin with and then you can speed it up and sometimes that's good and useful but sometimes it's just a way for it to be done quicker and for you to have finished a task that you feel like you need to do and so once you've done it you've performed fulfilled your obligations kind of learned some things I'm guilt-free. I can move on to the next thing. So I, I, I suspect that it's, yeah, I guess, I guess there's maybe there's more questions there to its efficacy than um, is presented at face value in terms of as, as what the university might want, to, might want to project. I don't know if you have any extra thoughts on any of those points. Yeah, absolutely. And also um, just, just to add to your point about um, uh, people, lectures, uh, uh, you, you frame it as, as as good or bad. I'd, I'd like to add to that and, 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 and describe mm-hmm. that um, like any other um, body, like any other population of, of workers, even just looking at students, um, most lectures are just average. Yeah. You get a few bad ones. It's, it's, it's a normal distribution. <laughs> mm. The majority of, 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 of us are just average. Um, uh, you'd like to think that um, every single lecturer that the university hires would be, um, you know, would be able to wave a magic wand and uh, they'll be masters on stage and, and uh, they, you know, they, they'd uh, be able to capture the hearts of all the students. But no, um, most are just average. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. the case in, 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 you know, all, all sorts of large um, bodies of, of workers, of employees, students that we get, the reality is the vast majority are just average, yeah? Um, you get, you know, your 10 15% who are HDs, you get your 10 15% who fail, who fail at either end. Um, so given that that will always be the reality, um, most lecturers will just be average in terms of the ability to engage students in a classroom. And also, you combine that with the reality that um, most lecturers um, aren't incentivized to be good teachers uh, because mm-hmm. lecturers have two most roles. Most academics, maybe. Yeah, most academics have two roles. Uh, um, and I'd say, for example, in banking and finance, 90% of lecturers are what they call TNR, teaching and research. In other words, they do both. However, the primary metric for promotion isn't how well they teach, it is how much research papers they produce. Mm. In fact, um, it, it is the primary metric for promotion or to keeping a job, not uh, um, the, uh, the the quality of your teaching, but the, the research of output that you do. So in terms of the teaching and the research, it's mainly about the research as opposed to the teaching. Mm. Now, that, that difference in incentives naturally skews the majority of of, of academics um, where uh, to get promoted, it's not because of the work they do in the classroom. It's because of their research output. Mm-hmm. Because of that and combine that with most people are just average, uh, uh, um, it, it can result in, in and the, the, uh, the outcomes are clear. You know? um, 
most lecturing experiences aren't really optimal. No. Uh, so I just wanted to to, to uh, add that to to all, all the really yeah. excellent points that, that that you put in, um, and you mentioned something very interesting as well, which was um, how students actually consume uh, the lecture recordings in terms of. Um, again, the performance is not optimal. I was actually talking about an optimal experience, um, mm. but most students consuming le online lectures aren't optimal. As you say, they fast forward it or they say, right, um, um, I'll, I can do it in my own time. I'll actually forget to do it because I don't have to, you, you automatically miss out on that commitment that you have when you need to do something face-to-face. So and like you said, you can just pause. You can go back. Let's say you need to do a quiz or whatnot. Um, you can just pause and go back to that thing. You don't. There's not much real incentive for recall and engagement during the time of the lecture if you can just go back to it. Depending on what the nature of the curriculum is. Absolutely. So uh, um, you know, students. There, there there is a percentage of the distribution of students which I um, actually get lost, which um, aren't that engaged aren't that motivated don't have the self-discipline to uh, provide for themselves the space the discipline the environment so that uh, what they consume in the lecture online um, is actually at the same level as they would uh, if they were in a lecture theater because um, the, that side of the argument would, would say that well um, you, you've you've dedicated a certain amount of time to be in the lecture theater. That's why you're there. Um, so if, if you could be doing many other things, it costs you money to be on campus. Um, mm. And as a result, you know, you, you, you should be more focused. You should be more disciplined. But the other side of the argument is then, you know, uh, some students will just turn up to the lecture just for the sake of it. And they'll be, you know, uh, on Facebook and, and, and watching episodes mm. and streaming even while they're in the lecture theater itself. So you, you yeah. get you, you, you do get both things happening. But I think there's there's one important thing that you touched about that is quite unique to um, to face to face lectures. Um, and that is that. Ultimately, we're talking about teaching. And teaching ultimately involves a human experience. Um, and there's something which online consumption uh, uh, of, of content cannot provide, and that is human inspiration. So, mm -hmm. for example, when I'm in a lecture theater, the students can see me face to face. Uh, and in the first lecture, I directly tell them, the reason why I'm here is because I care about your education. It, it, it has an entirely different impact when I'm face-to-face -face with the student, looking them in the eye and telling them that as opposed to they're watching a recording of me saying it. Mm -hmm. um, the, the online transfer of information loses that emotional resonance of mm -hmm. physically being in the presence with someone. When, when, when psychologists have studied it, the difference between uh, FaceTiming the uh, 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 in relationships and the difference between physically being present with someone, uh, um, it, it it's literally different brain chemicals that are triggered. Mm -hmm. So going online loses that. And uh, um, 
you, you, you before sometimes students speak of 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 their good teachers that their good teachers have inspired them uh, it is much more difficult to inspire students in a video camera uh, as opposed to physically being there with someone to physically talking with it so um, the the asynchronous um, online material loses that so so that was actually one of the very big things and questions that we're currently struggling with in the design in the reimagining if you will of how mm -hmm. students uh, uh, consume asynchronous lecture content how do we number one structure things in such a way so that um, it is not just the watching of a two-hour lecture video so the 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 it's not just a recording of a live lecture that the students will con be consuming it is dedicated material specifically designed to attempt to maximize the engagement of students to create a situation where students um, do have to devote time and effort and discipline to create space for their learning uh, and there are activities that can be that can create that that for again for the majority of students you 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 never be able to do it for all but again when you're doing these things to scale as we are at monash where you know we, uh, my, my unit has as you know like 900 students in it so mm -hmm. again you, you 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 how can we move um the distribution how can you have the impact for the majority of students and um that that's what that's what we think about so for example in terms of um how do you try to connect better with students when you lose that uh, face-to-face -face communication. Um, uh, we're, we're having a two or three minute motivational video at the start of every topic where rather than, you know, it's just a, a set of PowerPoint slides with a voiceover, um, the start of every set of asynchronous learning, which replaces the lecture would be, uh, for example, um, a selfie walk and talk video. I'm in a park, I'm taking a scroll, uh, a stroll through the park mm -hmm. and I'm just looking to the camera, a camera cameras on a selfie stick and, and I just talk, greet students and, and uh, um, I, I talk a bit about why you're learning the particular topic, why it's important, how it fits in with prior topics, how it fits in with assessment. Um, and, and, and just to have that, mode of video communication which people it's a bit more casual but uh it will enable us i think to as a person connect a bit more with students rather than the very typical clinical sterile uh video environment or video that 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 students typically see from a lecture so we could have that and then after that there would be sort of uh, uh different chunks of videos um, interspaced with um, uh, questions, quizzing interspaced with, with other different varieties of videos, such as animation, such as time board, time, uh, whiteboard, timeline drawings. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, More interactive in a sense. For example, like, like you see some of the very good uh, um, the pure content delivery material uh, that lots of students have mentioned is like Khan Academy videos. Khan Academy mm. videos, just, you know, just a voiceover of a hand drawing. So we intermix everything up. Um, but we also want to, to try and develop that sort of um, emotional connection with students as people, as educators, because the ultimate aim of this is not just the pure transmission of knowledge, 
the aim of the lecture is also the engagement of the students. Mm -hmm. And the lecture is actually now just student experience. Yeah, it's just one half where the other half of the learning experience is to draw the students into the two hour tutorial where they continue that learning, where we actually connect with them. Uh, we, we, we've, uh, we, we, we resonate, we are able to, 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 to build those um, very unique face-to-face -face human connections. So it's meant to marry up with that. It's not a standalone experience as uh, lectures before often were. I mean, you've mm -hmm. got the tutorial, but the tutorials are tacked on to the lectures. Um, so this is, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> so, so we have all these things in mind. Um, uh, how do we um, have a, 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 a asynchronous, non-face-to-face set of learning activities, not just the watching of a video that enables uh, uh, and encourages students to be more engaged. Uh, and it's not just about the pure delivery of content anymore, which is the reason why lots of students were not coming to lectures because they weren't interacting. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so we, we do lose certain things, we gain certain things, um, uh, and, and ultimately it is the recognition of the strengths and weaknesses of both approaches, so as to try and and build something which is better at the end. Because this is a this is a big uh, it's a big massive project that we're embarking on. Yeah, and those all sound like very admirable, and I hope and I think will be effective attempts to rec rep to to create an optimal online experience because. And not, that's always going to be difficult to make an online experience when we're not fundamentally not geared to an online experience, I guess, in many ways. Uh, I think it's, and it's, it's probably worth just touching, rewinding and touching back on the nature of the, of the human connection and the, like the intimacy and the inspiration that you get from the nature of lectures and a lecturer like how many brilliant and productive people that have led meaningful lives have stemmed, have come from a lecture theater where they've been engaged and taught by a lecturer who they themselves, who has inspired them, who they have admired and who has given them inspiration on what a topic could be, what a pursuit of knowledge could be like, how that, how that might resonate with them and then the kind of person they could be, um, the kind of character that they could have, and so I think that that is something that really, and that's and that is what is really that is really what is missing when you ha don't let's say when you have an average lecturer. I think when, when we're talking about of someone, someone like a great, I think you've got average lecturers, let's say, and not, you know, not being too denigrating to those those people. Like the, I'm sure they're trying, and it's it's a difficult thing to do, right? But a like a great lecturer, you have I think you have average lecturers and then great lecturers, like the people that that I remember that have stood out to me. Um, they I just thought that they were fantastic. Like one person in particular that I had during a uh, a brief period for only one or two classes during my a chemistry degree. Content was all the same as it had been pretty much with previous people, but he came in 
And I don't know, he did something that was just like, man, this guy is so cool and he is making this topic so cool and I suddenly care about it that much more. Um, and that, and so that, sh- re- that should really be the goal, I think. And so he, I don't know, I guess this idea, well, there's an, ins- there's, there's, there's an assumption here that, or a, maybe not an assumption, but a, a pathway that's been taken that it, instead of, okay, let's invest more into generating these in-person, making lecturers more engaging and successful in person, let's just simply, like, let's not invest in that because that costs money and perhaps that's quite difficult and it doesn't align really with the incentives of the university, maybe the more fundamental incentives of the university. Let's just change the mode and not really have, which also saves us money and um, allows us to just kind of go with the trend rather than to go with the flow, rather than to try and push back and really recreate something that is truly powerful. So, and I think, well, then that speaks to these other underlying motivations, which is the financial ones, which we haven't really talked about. Like this is all well and it's all well and good to talk about how um, lectures aren't working, but, you know, how much of this really is just coming down to financial perspective and a and a lack on the university's behalf to really invest into something that is known that can work but isn't working rather than transitioning to something that we've got to we've got to try and make work if that's a fair um i think that's a fair sort of um scoping of things yeah i mean that that that's the ideal so for example to to create a learning experience to create a university um, where the primary objective is to inspire students, which um, is 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 ultimately, I would argue, the best outcome. Because when students are inspired, they will themselves they will they will internalize the learning. <clears throat> they will be disciplined. They will apply themselves in such a way which you know cannot be replicated, uh, and and is the best sort of outcome. <clears throat> so. Uh, but that is an ideal, um, and in order to 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 realize that ideal, um, you, you would have to have a university, for example, where you hire lecturers and you hire staff members purely based off: Are you able to inspire a student? Yes, you're in. No, you're out. Um, mm. But academics aren't hired that way. Ninety um, percent um, of of the academics in most departments are research focused but why can't they be hired that way uh again that that, that's a legacy of the educational system um because the the this is a disconnect between the leadership of the university and um this ideal of what education should be um and again it's it's similar to the disconnects between for example the uh um the politicians and the people who are really at the grassroots. Um, and th- again, the, 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 the disconnect between the very top and, and the bottom. Uh, it exists in many organizations and exists in many populations, but ultimately um, when, when the vice chancellors get up there, 
they get hired, they say, well, this is what I've got. I've got a, a population of um, 600 academics. What am I going to do? Am I going to fire them all and then rehire them based off how whether you inspire students? Um, my research rankings, uh, my, my, the rankings of the university ultimately come uh, significantly influenced by the number of research papers uh, in top tier journals that my university produces. How are we going to maintain our ranking um, if, if I just uh, hire um, academics based purely on um, teaching? Um, mm -hmm. so again, reality in this and other different ways hits home. And then if, mm -hmm. if you, if, uh, um, I mean, in, in an ideal world, you know, I, I create my own university and I'd say, well, we are university. This is our objective. We are here to inspire, to, to get, provide the best teachers available to students. And a lot of people would say it, it is a rare unicorn that you get outstanding researchers and outstanding teachers overlapping. The, that overlap of the Venn diagram is almost non-existent because uh, the type of skill sets you need to be a good researcher uh, don't really complement the skill sets you need to be a good teacher. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, to be a good teacher, you need to care about your students. And that caring comes from a very different place than people who want to be good researchers. Research ultimately is very selfish. Uh, you, you know, it's it's not really altruistic. Um, you you most people are generating the research papers because they need to keep their job. Uh, most people aren't that completely interested in what they're researching anyway, um, and it, it's very lonely. It, it does not involve. Uh, engaging, speaking to, communicating with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of students. It doesn't involve motivating them. Uh, uh, so given all these sorts of realities, um, we, we have the system that we have. I mean, um, uh, in, in a fantasy, it would be wonderful for, uh, you know, I'm, I'm one of the one in 10 Academics who's education focused, so it would it would be a, um, a fantasy to for for a billionaire to give me an endowment of one billion dollars. I'd set at my own university, and I'd say mm -hmm. we don't care about rankings. Um, what we care about is giving you an amazing teaching experience for you to get an idea about what you will learn, and for parents to give you an idea about what your children would learn instead of an open day you just attend our classes for a day. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to market anything to you. You will actually see what we do. Um, and, and part of that experience is, is a holistic education about intellectual, emotional maturity, understand and, and developing self-awareness, not just content delivery. So, and, you know, <clears throat> and, and I hire people who only uh, have that as their priority. It's, it's, it, it's quite straightforward when you enter a lecture theater, when you engage with a person to sense whether somebody genuinely cares about students' education, mm -hmm. uh, you, you get a, uh, you can, you can, and, and students can tell very quickly and very easily as well too. And yeah, that will be an ideal world, but in uh, a non-ideal world where we've got so many other considerations and also, um, most of our universities are government funded, 
and there are certain metrics that they require universities uh, um, to meet, which mm-hmm. aren't aligned to that ideal uh, that actually prevents that from occurring. So um, that's the reality. Well, there's a there's there's kind of a perverse. Well, there's a non-incentive for good teachers in that you don't have, even if you don't have good teachers from an inside perspective, kids are still going to go to university. You know, kids are still kids just aren't going to stop going to university just because the teachers aren't great necessarily. Like, and they won't know that probably until they're already in university and committed to that university. And whatever it is that they're doing, because they need the degree. Mostly, it's just because they need the degree for some reason. Maybe they also like it too, if they're lucky. But mostly, it's because they kind of need the degree to be able to go and then do something onwards. And yeah, and I think just as a side note, what the, the public intellectual Jordan Peterson. I think the reason why he's part of the reason why he's so successful. Speaking to that point that you were making before, is that he has that overlap of being a, f- a very successful and productive researcher, but also a fantastic teacher, an absolutely incredible form of communication and care. You can tell he's super, he's so passionate about telling you what you need to know about, and and he weaves in practical knowledge and. Um, knowledge that has utility and is just baseline interesting in with say course material and this is I think this is one of the things which has helped to make him so successful and I think he's also trying to set up a mini university that's doing what you were saying uh, that has that doesn't have um, research outcomes as like a guiding metric it's just it's purely about giving the best course possible educational experience possible but which will be interesting if that works. But anyway, I think that what I just touched on with the, the sort of practical, pragmatic experience, I think we also try to cram so much, if not dry, but then just very narrow goal-directed um, content into such a short frame of time without giving any room for lecturers and lectures and courses to be able to be a bit more interesting and maybe tangent off into something that's provides you know that that instills something along the lines of wisdom and knowledge and understanding and character development um, along those there's there's just no for most um, courses there is just no room for that whatsoever not really if you're lucky you get something like you did at the start of the lecture where you were able to fit in like a ten minute um, um, slide that you talk about which was which can in itself can be enough but that's that's sort of really all you could do i also think like two hours you know two hours as a lecture i think that's probably a bit suboptimal in terms of i think one hour you start to lose people start to lose their their capacity their cognitive capacity a little bit so just as a little note but yeah well i guess i mean how do you feel about all this personally like you're a lecturer you're not going to be able to lecture anymore. Um, like, well, what do you, how do you feel? Well, I mean, th- this this is where um, <clears throat> um, you know you you go through those stages in your life where um, 
the environment that you're involved in, that your work evolves in such a dramatic fashion that you have to ask yourself, you know, uh, what are you going to do? Uh, 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 do you, uh, and, and ultimately, um, my the core idea, uh, the core motivation behind why I'm at work is I have, I have great clarity about it. It's because I think there's nothing better I can do with my time than uh, helping young people um, be smarter, uh, be more self-aware through education. And um, ultimately, the university is saying that we're going to do this. Uh, I originally had misconceptions about it, as any uh, inertia would 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 provide. Um, and then can you adapt? Can you actually say, well, okay, if we remove the lectures, uh, we lose this. How can we try in the new system to develop a set of learning activities which is limited to only one mode, but loses uh, uh, the least or in aggregate gains the most. Um, you have to be in the game to be able to play the game. So for me, it was just a, a, a very quick sort of um, evolution to say that, well, um, I, I, I completely understand the reasons for what's happening. Um, I, I want to be involved in the project so I can, uh, in, in my small way, influence it so that um, it has the best outcome. So, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm going to take it on board and, and I'm going to do as, 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 as good a job as I can with it uh, so that it, <clears throat> it loses the least possible and it gains the most. Right. Uh, so so that, that, that's, that's the way in which I've adapted there, there, there are certain people which won't be able to adapt <clears throat> and it's up to them to to decide how they they, they want to handle their work but yeah um, uh, I've, I've, I've decided to take that attitude which uh, um, you know align still enables me to be um, true to my motivation so I guess it, that's it, it, a... yeah because I've got clarity as to why I'm doing this. And uh, if this is the way that we're moving, I can understand why they are for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, um, genuine reasons as to why. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I want to be in it so that I can influence the outcome and, 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 and that naturally as part of the system where people choose to opt in, in that fashion, it make, does make the outcome better as opposed to uh, uh, other people who uh, um, don't recognize possibly the inherent flaws and attempt to compensate or attempt to correct or uh, uh, can maybe even completely overcome them. I just don't think of that. They just don't think about it at all. Let's do it. Well, you know, I, I've been, as part of this entire process, I've been working with um, lots of education designers who have a lot more, um, classroom scholarly pedagogy knowledge, but they aren't in the classroom. And ultimately, 
they, they've been uh, suggesting things uh, out of very good intentions. They've suggested some very, very good things, but they've also suggested uh, um, directions which I know won't work. So um, because of the sort of considerations that I mentioned. So as a result, um, you know, I've, I've been there to be able to influence the process to create outcomes that ultimately are compromises, but um, uh, as all, all these big projects need to be, but ultimately I think uh, w w would be better uh, uh, and would, would create a better result in terms of, for example, um, maintaining or, or trying to retain or trying to direct students uh, uh, to, to keeping that that human touch in terms of teaching. Like, like for example, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to try to pretend that um, a, a set of asynchronous online activities can inspire students, but what a set of very engaging online uh, um, asynchronous activities can do is to make students more motivated to attend class or better yet, direct students into consultation, mm -hmm. for example, or with other staff. So, um, so yeah, um, things like that can, can, can be done. And ultimately uh, that uplifts the entire result. Yeah. Well, I think that's a very pragmatic and admirable approach because obviously what it suggests is that you genuinely do have the students well-being and outcome in mind and it's not just picking a fight with what you think is right or wrong you're getting on with it yeah i mean firstly uh nobody's perfect and nobody's indispensable uh and and ultimately um if i'm able to create a good outcome of this project which uh, uh addresses some or most of the concerns that we've raised, then this particular, um, uh, it can be used as a, a role model and an example for when this is replicated throughout other units. Yeah. So it, it, it's, to me, it, it's better to have skin in the game and to be playing the game um, and to, to engage it from that perspective as opposed to opting out. Mm. Well, this is only... Because I guess this is only kind of one side of the story. This is lectures. Lectures are a very significant part of a university but, and, a, and a course. But perhaps even more significant, at least definitely from the student's perspective, um, is exams. And so, as you mentioned last time we spoke, at least in the Monash Business School, because you mentioned that that's where this, this is kind of starting and that's where Monash makes the most revenue and so that's where things get trialed out top-down and then trickled down through the rest of the various disciplines and schools. Exams are being... If, maybe I'll, um, I'll try to recap what you said to me. So exams are being eliminated from the curriculum for a few reasons. Firstly, students are failing exams. Students aren't... Well, maybe not students are... Students fail exams. Exams have... A decently high fail rate. They're a incredibly stressful time in a student's throughout a student's um, learning life. They encourage this form of learning and knowledge uptake that is very condensed, very frantic, and then doesn't necessarily lead to any retention 
after the exam. So the efficacy of the exam is called into question, as you mentioned also at the beginning of this podcast. And it's also a very costly effective, a very costly enterprise for the university to host exams. So we've got, again, as it's kind of, we've kind of been circling around for this whole conversation, there's two motivating factors or determining factors. One is cost and the other is the, at least the purported efficacy of the pedagogy in question. So maybe, well, let's, maybe let's start with, let's start with the revenue side and then go, what, what do you think is most at play here? I think they're both equally at play because these decisions are being driven by management uh, uh, and uh, they they consider both equally. Um, mm. uh, ultimately, if, if a, a de- deputy vice chancellor is hired with the objective of number one, uh, and a- any any anybody hired onto, for example, that level, uh, which is the executive board of director level, um, the reason why to bring them on board is because they can say, well, you know, I can increase revenue while at the same time reducing costs. <laughs> So yeah. that's from the pure business perspective. And they say, how are you going to do that? And they say, here's how, how we're going to do that. Um, and this particular strategy of doing that is not only uh, um, makes business sense, but also aligns exactly with uh, um, the, the outcomes and, and making us better aligned with the, uh, um, the, the other outcomes that the organization has. And then everybody claps their hands and say, yes. Um, so it, it, is, it isn't, in my opinion one more than another, it is both equally woven into uh, a narrative um, that uh, that leadership puts forward um, and then is recognised as genuine and therefore is filtered out throughout the entire university. So <clears throat> the, the, the anecdotal <clears throat> and the empirical evidence is, is without any doubt. Uh, and, and that's best summed up with the experience uh, where, for example, uh, you've got units, uh, subjects which are prerequisite for other units. And then um, in those latter units, you say, well, um, you should know this because you've done this before in the prerequisite subject. And the student says, oh, I forgot everything after I finished the exam. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's just uh, um, something which students have repeated um, over the whole 20 years I've been at Monash University. So... Again, it, 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 it is very compelling evidence proven empirically and anecdotally that um, exams aren't having the sort of ultimate goal of assessment that we want them to have. So the, the, the university has branded assessment as authentic or inauthentic. So authentic assessment should be assessment, which number one, is developing real workplace skills. Number two, it is uh, encouraging students' learning that is authentic in the sense of um, students aren't just learning for the sake of the assessment. The assessment is done for the sake of learning. Uh, and and the, the, the issue with exams before in the past it's not, that's not true of the entire cohort, but a lot of the cohort 
was studying just for the exam, just to pass the exam. They don't care about what they're learning, particularly for closed book exams, particularly when we're dealing with the large chunk of the middle distribution of students. They're not studying for the sake of learning. They're not studying for the sake of, uh, of using the knowledge, of, of, of appreciating its value, of seeing how it can be applied and the process of which opens up more neural pathways in their brain and therefore makes them smarter in terms of developing critical or independent thinking. They're not doing it for that. So for all these reasons, uh, um, exams, uh, the, 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 the university and, and the leadership is saying that exams are not authentic assessment. Uh, and because when students go out to work, the vast majority of them don't sit exams as part of their workplace uh, uh, KPIs as part of what they have to do at work. So it is inauthentic. Um, the way in which we've been justifying exams before the past is that it is simply the easiest way to assess students to scale. How, how do you, so ultimately, in my opinion, one of the best ways of assessment is to have a one or two hour interview with students. So I'd come in mm -hmm. and I'd say, right, <clears throat> okay, we're going to have an interview uh, and I'm going to ask you certain things and how you articulate to me, how you express yourself uh, um, would, you know, uh, those series of questions rather than ask them in, in, in a written form in, where the students have to respond to an exam, I'd ask you face to face uh, and then we'd have a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. And then... <clears throat> There would be other components where, you know, so you have to do calculations, for example. So let's calculate this. All right. And then you're given you know, 50 minutes to calculate. Uh, and then next is, okay, now uh, you used to use Excel to model this. All right. And then we have a discussion. So what do you think is the outcomes? How will we use this information? <clears throat> so to me, that would be the best form of assessment mm. where you can actually make the assessment or think that you could tailor it to, 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 to really seeing whether the student understands uh, um, That's not scalable, though. We can't do that to scale. How do you do that across, for example, the 1,000 students that, that I have every semester? So exams have, they've always been done, that we've always had exams because it is the easiest way to scale assessment hmm. uh, to hundreds of students, to thousands of students. Um, uh, and 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 it hasn't really paid attention to all these other concerns because then the people who do exams will say, but yeah, if we don't have exams, how else would you measure whether students reach a hurdle, reach mm -hmm. a benchmark? It's been a very simple, purely quantitative metric. So what the university has actually done is to, to, to be more authentic to the question of, are our students actually learning anything through assessment? Is our assessment driving students' learning outcomes as opposed to students just studying for assessment? It's make it made our job more authentic. It's made our job harder by taking away this very easy sort of um, uh, crutch that mm. we've been leaning on all this time. Uh, and the only way to do that is that you have to force the change. You have to mandate the change. No more exams. So, you know, and that has to be done at the highest level. Because if if that wasn't done, then we would be doing exams, <laughs> and, you know, 100 years later on. Uh, 
and we said, yeah, yeah, we know that exams don't, you know, aren't really authentic, but, you know, it's the way that we've always been doing things. And, uh, and as a result, uh, um, you know, we're mm -hmm. not going to change because it's too hard. <laughs> so, for, for, <clears throat> yeah. Well, I guess there's reason why this is so part of the reason why this is so interesting is because there's so many implicit assumptions that are kind of just being worked with here that aren't yep. in the old system. And then also with this new process. So for example, you said that the, that some units, the learning is for the sake of the assessment rather than the assessments for the sake of learning. I think mm -hmm. I, that's right. Yeah. So, but that is assuming as well that you get rid of the exam and students still aren't doing the assessments, aren't learning for the sake of the assessments rather than doing the assessments for the sake of the learning. Just getting rid of the exam isn't, isn't going to um, somehow flip that around. You know, so how many students are just doing a course just because that's what they've got to do? And they feel like they need to do, and they're again they're kind of interested in it. Maybe they're really interested in it, and that's great. But that's that's not the majority, frankly, particularly not throughout an entire degree. Um, and so there's that assumption there that taking out exams is going to somehow make is going to is going to alter that. Um, then there is the well. Firstly, I guess I'm a little skeptical that on the since sincerity and the ability of students to self-report on their own feelings and subjects on this matter because there's so many conflicting reasons of why you might say something about an exam you know students don't like exams they're hard they don't feel great and they it's one more avenue for failure if a question feels geared towards do you learn something from exams oh no fuck that exams are useless that's not necessarily i don't i forget everything well if you don't do an exam how do you know you're not just forgetting everything as well you know so there's that isn't necessarily there isn't necessarily an answer for that or a justification for that just like in the previous question and so that then goes to the question of okay well if i'm just doing assessments in more assessments in term which is the proposal here and I only need to learn a topic during for a week, and then the next week I learn a different topic. I can just forget about that topic the week after. And how is that any different from forgetting about that topic or those topics after an exam? The thing about the exam is that it's at least forced you to go over that topic twice, which and maybe it's in quite it it is in quite an inten intense period, and so the efficacy of that is also in question. But you could. You know, hypothetically, it's not unreasonable to think that having to go over a topic twice is going to be more effective than going over a topic once, regardless of the, the purported um, retention of that knowledge afterwards. And I'm not necessarily defending exams. I'm not sure what I think about exams. I think they probably have their uses and their downfalls. But I guess I'm not convinced that these reasons that are being put forth for the elimination of exams are actually particularly well justified. They're just sort of these observations that there's kind of these notional observations. Um, and so, you know, I'm fascinated to see how that does actually change things. I know that students will love not having exams and maybe that will make them 
feel more engaged. I had a unit that in chemistry that didn't have exams and I really enjoyed it. Did I retain more than my other units? I'm not sure. I can't remember. <laughs> it's, you know, <laughs> and that's going to be, that's going to so often be the case, I think. So I guess it's, all of this is really difficult. And there's all these nice assumptions that seem to be aimed at pedagogy. Um, purport to pedagogy, improved pedagogy, and outcomes for students. But that the only real, but when you look at it, the only real concrete outcomes that you know are going to be the case is that the university is going to have to exp- spend less and oh, yes. that more kids are going to pass their units and that yes. is going to look good for the university. So when yeah. on one hand you've got all these all these un, um, unsupported notions, in a, all, these, all these assumptions that sound great but aren't necessarily proven, and then all these concrete realities that are financially driven, it kind of, it's hard to not be a little cynical, a little cynical about the whole. Uh, ab- absolutely, absolutely. You, you, uh, you, you're absolutely correct. These concrete political gains, hmm. not as an outcome <clears throat> of genuinely better performance and better learning but just as an artifact of the mechanism of not having exams more students will pass for sure right and and again uh, it's one of the things that that you know um you don't really talk about because it then casts doubt on on the authenticity of the entire process but Mm -hmm. again uh you know um like like so many of the things which happens um, politics is uh, a, a driving factor. So again, ultimately, th- there is one thing, one genuine thing, though, that I believe has come out of this process. Exams weren't perfect. The <clears throat> people who were for exams would say that we know that this sort of works. We don't have any other system. So we'll just continue on with it. So what has happened for political reasons, uh, um, definitely part of it is for political reasons, uh, but I also think for a genuine alignment of motives to, uh, uh, to try to do something better, the entire anthill was kicked over. Mm-hmm. And when the anthill is kicked over, it says that, right, we need to break out of the inertia because we have a new deputy vice chancellor and and new people are brought in to break the inertia whether the inertia needs to be broken or not that's another another matter but when things are kicked over like this when change is forced then it gives uh, the people like me who are brought onto the unit to, to this project to say, well, okay, I understand the concerns that students are learning for the assessment and the assessments aren't driving the learning. So now that we have to go back to scratch, go back to the drawing board, we don't have assess exams anymore. How do we redesign within semester assessment so that assessment is done to drive learning. Mm. So it forces us 
to go back to the drawing board. It forces us, or at least it gives us the opportunity to embark on an opportunity of renewal. Mm. At least it gives us that. And ultimately, will it result in better outcomes? As an artifact of the mechanism, yeah, sure. But will it really result genuinely in students having better learning outcomes? We won't know if we don't try. So again, uh, 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 maybe we do this for 10, 20 years. And then us who are doing it will know whether it generates genuinely better outcomes when we're honest with ourselves. Uh, and, and part of whether it does generate more authentic learning outcomes is based off how well a job we do with it. Is there the possibility that it can generate better learning outcomes? Absolutely. So one of, one of the things that automatically when we, we say to students, okay, you do not have a closed book hurdle rate exam anymore. Students will automatically breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, yeah. God, I don't have to rise anymore. I don't have to, you know, to, to spend the hours just trying to remember a fact that I'm completely uninterested mm-hmm. in just for the sake that it might come out on the exam. So that, mm-hmm. uh, and that's why students forget about it. We can say to students, we know how this assessment affects you, but we know you're breathing a sigh of relief. But your, your side of relief isn't based on the fact that your education will necessarily get easier because you still need to pass. So we then know that your attention, instead of being laser focused on, I need to get 50% on this to pass, will then be focused on the progression of assessment. You'll be paying attention to, right, how am I doing in my weekly quiz? And in order to do to do this on my weekly quiz, then I need to be learning the material actually so that I get a mark on my weekly quiz, which means I pass. And or, I can focus on that material a lot yeah, more the, effectively the, in that week. Exactly. The, the, the focus, the, the, the minds, because every students and all we have limited mind space. The mind space isn't focused on I just only care about passing the exam. The mindset we can, we can say to students, you, 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 you can't focus your mindset on just passing the exam because we've got no more exams. You need to focus on the actual weekly learning material that we're doing. Why? Because we have, for example, instead of a big exam, we have five fortnightly mini tests. Yeah, mm. they're worth four percent. But but if 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 you if you <clears throat> sort of fall over in the first two. We can then say that, right, you need to hit 50%. This is the this is the minimum level you need to pass. You're currently here. Yeah. In your last three tests, you need to buck up. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, it, when it comes to your assignments, the assignments suddenly mean a lot more because if if you're not doing well, then we can yeah. we can we can then have a renewal in terms of how we reshape students' expectations and say to them, right, in your assignments, you should aim to get as good a mark in the work that you're doing for the assignments because this is actually your learning. Yeah. No exam. All right. And students will fall over, for example, in one assignment, we can say, well, you need to really back up for the second assignment, isn't it? 
And for the second assignment, it can involve learning from, like, like as you know, you know, in, in our foundations assignment, the second assignment involves learning from almost all the, 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 the previous topics. And we also have a test, but that test is like a mini exam handle, held at the end. Mm-hmm. It's, for example, 30% instead of 50% and you don't have to pass yeah. it. <clears throat> so, so we still have the, the, that, that, that test which requires application for every single topic that they've learned, but <clears throat> it doesn't have a hurdle and it's mm-hmm. of a much lower weightage. Um, mm-hmm. So again, it, it, it supports um, the realignment of focus to the actual learning within semester. So I, 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 I completely agree that that um, objective is entirely authentic. Uh, uh, and I, I think that that would mm. can result in better outcomes. I, I think I would tend to, I think I would probably tend to agree. Like something d- depends on the topic at hand and mode of assessment at hand. But if you're able to spend some time sitting, thinking and writing in a comfortable space um, for an assessment, that is going to be far more informative and instructive, I think, than stressfully cramming information and out and spinning it out on a test. Um, like the, the power of writing and thinking, having to think deeply about something over an extended period is not something to be undervalued at all. And I think exams are a little unrealistic in the sense that they expect you to, let's say you're a typical student, you've got four units in a semester, maybe you're doing three, but let's say you're doing four. Let's say four, the, all four units have exams and you have got to cram in and you don't know what's going to be on the exam. So you've got to somehow account for, maybe you have an idea, but you don't really know. And you have to account for 12 weeks of learning across four units you know you've got you've you've got to account for 48 weeks of learning in a sense into a few documents spread over a couple of weeks and now that on its head just doesn't seem particularly effective and it's going to be stressful and so that's i guess that speaks to what you were saying before with that sigh of relief is that if you don't just simply not having an exam at the end where you know that's going to be the case allows you to be a little freer and a little more relaxed which i think is going to is going to encourage better learning in those moments within semester in uh during from from week to week so i you know regardless of all those assumptions which i think are fair and need to be considered um and aren't necessarily justified but the i think i would still lean towards the fact of exams not being not being optimal or just optimized towards learning like you're not a hard drive you shouldn't really have to be a hard drive and that's what the exam modality kind of is so yeah exactly and and when i think about in the workplace people inherently become content experts. They become content experts not by memorizing. They become content experts through the constant application of the knowledge in multiple 
changing, involving dynamic perspectives. That's how they become content experts. And when we can try and apply that Mm -hmm. reality throughout 12 weeks of learning, where you are consistently applying rather than exam, because ultimately everything for, is, you, you, you can, you can, you can, uh, uh, you know, um, talk about whatever high-minded sort of learning objectives that you have, but ultimately students say, yeah, but I just want to pass the exam. Um, exactly. And that, or I just want to pass the unit. I want to pass yeah, my degree. I just, I just want to pass. I, I just want to pass. And, and so <clears throat> again, these are, I, I, I've latched on to this, objective which i i think is bona fide 100 authentic and now we have the opportunity because the anthill has been kicked over we will never do this if we were not forced to do it the entire anthill is kicked over i have an opportunity to shape this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so we can genuinely achieve this objective and ultimately we'll see uh, um because the only way we will know whether this can have a better result is when we try it. Um, and, and, and over a, a, a series of time when it's refined, when it's, uh, uh, you know, we look at it, we reflect, we improve, it evolves, then we can say. <clears throat> so so if, if we were just in the pure exam paradigm without it, we, we don't have the evidence to, to say that, you know, which is better, exams or no exams. So now um, it, it's it, it's that, it, it's genuine to me because we're trying the other way and where there are genuine reasons for trying the other way. We are, uh, and, and uh, um, you know, we'll have the information. We'll give it the best shot that we can. Genuinely, honestly, I think we can do it. And, uh, um, and then we'll, we'll see, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to compare the results after an extended period of time and and that that to me is is authentic well i hope they are good changes and i hope they hope it does go well and i do definitely appreciate what you're saying in that in terms of it's a opportunity to shake things up and to try something new and to perhaps to get something better out of things and i hope that is the case and that is supported because it's not just that we're getting rid of exams as you're going to a more online forum. So those two things, one, get rid of exams could be great, but maybe an online forum kills things a bit. Who knows? You know, hopefully, that, hopefully they don't cancel each other out. And hopefully they can both work effectively because I think anything that can be done at a university to make students more motivated, more engaged, more inspired... Um, to to be there and to just about life in general you know and to not be and to not have to offset the 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 trials of their experience with all the hedonistic activity that comes with youth and to be a bit more forward thinking maybe a bit more optimistic a bit more aligned with the notion of character development as a emotional intellectual the the appreciation of wisdom, civic virtue, all of those things, anything that universities can do to improve the experience for the student, I think is 
needs to be done and and should should be done so if that's something that you're capable of achieving and setting in to whatever extent and setting a new standard for for the other faculty then that's then that's a good thing <laughs> and well, and to speak to that point i suppose and maybe to kind of start to wrap things up a little bit what do you think is important for uni students to consider to think about what is what yeah let's leave it at that well I, I, I personally think that it's 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 my job, definitely it's my personal aim to help as many students as possible realize that their university education can be so much more than what they expected. Um, how do you communicate the idea of inspiration, self-epiphany, and self-awareness? You can't. It has to be an experience that you do go through. Um, but I think to to uh, the answer to your question is really going back to trying to engender uh, the mode and style of thinking of understanding why. Why am I doing this? What do I wish to get out of it? And and ultimately, you mentioned with all the other <clears throat> hedonistic activities out there, I, I've always been encouraged. I mean, over over the span of two decades, I have genuinely seen the younger generations be more capable. Uh, it, it, it's it's not just lip service. Um, as the successive generations come through, they have. Every generation has their own unique challenges, but as successive generations of students have come through, I have seen them maybe because they are more freed uh, from, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you've got the ba very basic needs. The students nowadays are more comfortable. They are, they are freed from, you know, the, the concerns of meeting to satisfy their basic needs. More and more of them, are able to say, well, well, what am I here? Why am I here? Why, why am I doing this? I, I see the greater capacity and interest um, to develop self-awareness at a younger age than older generations, and 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 that that's that that's that gives me great optimism. Mm -hmm. um, so. When we try and align education to be holistic, um, to include explorations, reflections of motivation to build self-awareness, I think that I, I, I'm very optimistic on, on the overall um, outcomes that this achieves. Mm -hmm. So um, to answer your question directly, um, especially now with the, the lifting of the burden of having to pass an exam, uh, we can focus more on, on that question. Students will have yeah. more headspace to focus on the, on the question. When, when, we, when, when, when I ask students, why are you here? I don't care. I just, I just have to pass the exam. No exam to pass. So you can, you can ask, you can, you can answer this question. Why are you here? Why are we learning all these things? Is there value? Like, like, for example, when we, when we teach about 
upcoming uh, topics about regulation, we can we can frame it from the perspective of um, financial regulation. And these are rules that you have to follow. It's not just rules you have to follow. It's it's why do we have these rules we have to follow? Uh, what what are the outcomes of, of not having these rules to follow? How much rules should we follow? What type of rules should we have in place? And we can directly link them to you know financial crises and and even what's happening right now of the collapse of three banks in the United States and um, other things which are happening to say well yeah so you you have uh, a far more <clears throat> intrinsic genuine appreciation understanding of this rather than financial regulation are just rules that we have to follow and it's created by mm-hmm. these people and and that's it mm-hmm. much more freedom to think certainly not a bad thing and i think that it speaks to what i would what, what i would probably suggest to students is that to begin to start paying attention really start to pay attention to themselves who they are who they who they're becoming so what it is that makes them who they are at that point in time how they what they think they think is what what they think is important what their values are what cause what gives them cause for either happiness or unhappiness in life at those points in time and also to and to pay attention in particular to what they might think is meaningful or worthwhile and worth doing with their time and part of that is starting to take things seriously start to take i think we encourage people to not and youth to not really start taking life and themselves seriously until quite a much later age than is perhaps optimal start taking yourself seriously in terms of what you're doing from day to day how you go about thinking about yourself and other people uh, your the nature of where you are in relation to the future that you envisage that you might want to envisage and to start to envisage something like a future to to begin to take aim at something to find something that you admire and to move towards it because you're going to need something along those lines in life and even if it's realizing paying attention and realizing why am i actually doing this degree and asking yourself that question and then that leading to the cascade of questions that leads you to uncover actually who you think you are as a person and what you think you might should be doing with your time and what you think is worthwhile. And I think that will, and then to interrogate in particular what it is, as I mentioned before, that makes me unhappy or is making me less than I, than I could be. And I think all those things serves to encapsulate it under the hood of simply Paying attention and starting to take things seriously is what will allow students, is what allows students and young people more broadly to orient themselves properly and to live a better life than they might otherwise. So I guess that's where I'd probably leave that. <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to like to add, Jason? No, no, I think uh, I think we've covered everything, uh, you know, with great depth and breadth today in terms of the topic at hand. So that's great to you, Lucien. Well done. Yeah, well, no, thank you. Um, that was fantastic conversation. And 
topic that I'm probably interested in more than most people just for purely for academic reasons. <laughs> but uh, I think it's very interesting and has a lot of potential in terms of its consequence. Um, so definitely interested to see how this plays out and to, to, and to touch base in the future to see to reflect on just how things have gone, particularly in terms of how we've talked about them now. So if you're willing to do that at some point, that'd be, I think, that'd be fantastic. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, um, w w this, will, this will be rolled out next semester, so we're not talking about something which is, uh, you know, pie in the sky. It's happening right now, and, um, um, you know, we're actually developing and, and, and creating um, all the material, all the new things this semester for, to roll out mm -hmm. next semester. And uh, I think over the next three semesters, we will be shaping it, refining it. Um, you know, the, the, what comes out next semester is definitely not the final product. It can't be mm -hmm. after such a momentous change. It has to be uh, uh, molded. Uh, um, you, we've got to reflect on it. We've got to see how it actually works. So, but yeah, it's something that's really happening right now. Yeah. Well, looking forward to talking about it more in the future. Thanks, yeah. Jason. No worries, no worries. <laughs>